Nixon's China Choice. The behind-the-scenes story of Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger's secret diplomacy that ended the first Cold War between the United States and the People's Republic of China. Now for Act 3, Eureka, featuring guest voice actor Ezra Stanley as Henry Kissinger. Henry leaves for his trip over the mountain at 3 o'clock our time, which is 4 a.m. in Pakistan and goes all the way to Peking, apparently, and uh, will be there overnight. Memorandum for the President from Henry A. Kissinger. Subject, my talks with Chinese Premier Cho Enlai. We boarded the Pakistani plane in pre-dawn obscurity to be greeted by four senior Chinese officials flown up from Peking two days earlier. Thursday, July 8th, at San Clemente. He discussed the polls some and concludes that overall the only thing that's going to count for us in the polls is some really dramatic, dramatic development, which we may very well have ne with next week's announcement. We were met at noon at Peking Airport by the very senior Marshal Yeh, who sought to confirm that you were, in principle, prepared to visit their country and that I was there for constructive talks between equals. The Chinese were worried about why I had come secretly. Was I ashamed to acknowledge meeting them? The Rogers meeting really went very well, in spite of the president's fear about the whole thing. The president did a superb job of picking up from my uh, earlier information to Rogers when I told him that uh, there was something cooking in Pakistan and that there was a reason for Henry to go. We were whisked away in Chinese-built limousines, curtains drawn through wide, clean streets with little traffic except bicycles. Henry had learned after he got there that the... Uh, thing was uh, what we thought it was, uh, and that they had shifted to where rather than just delivering a message to him, they wanted him to come to Peking for a meeting with Cho. We passed through the huge Tiananmen Square to a stately but totally secluded government guest house in the western section of the capital. President obviously is really cranked up about this whole Chinese thing, and uh, did go on and on talking about it. It's really true, you know, and I spoke to these kids at Easter, and I said, you know, I hope that in your time you'll be able to go to China, and I want our policies to be one that will make it possible. You know, we don't realize, I think China, more than Moscow, is a goddamned uh, nerve uh, thing for these people. What do you think? Oh, one thing that's uh, amusing to me is that the, the way that the China thing really got the, got our liberal friends all up in a, up in a tizzy. It shows you how they react to anything. This is also worrying the Russians. It's worrying Hanoi. After drinking tea with our hosts, we rested, consumed the first of a series of Chinese meals of staggering variety and quantity, and prepared for Cho Enlai's arrival. The president made the point that Henry must get an agreement out of Cho Enlai that no Democrat is to go to China before the president goes. It's a really amusing to me, though, because it's a, while Mike is honorable, these other Democrats are not. The way they're all pandering around and now trying to run over there to China. At our first encounter, like the entire visit, Cho was matter-of-fact urbane and totally at ease without any of the self-conscious sense of hierarchy of Soviet officials. His command of facts, and in particular, his knowledge of American advance was remarkable. Of course, you realize that the Chinese will probably have, they're bound to have uh, probably Mansfield, maybe Teddy and Muskie and the rest, they'll all visit China too. Joe and Lai ranks with Charles de Gaulle as the most impressive foreign statesman I have met. 
everybody will think we opened the door for him. I'm not so worried about that. I mean, Parliament was concerned about the fact that maybe they'd go before we did. And I said, oh, don't worry about it. Suppose they do. Nobody goes like the president. The Chinese treated the entire visit with elaborate correctness and courtesy. They were extremely tough on substance and ideological in their approach. They concentrated on essentials. They eschewed invective and haggling over details. We got to talking about how funny it was that uh, Yahya made such a point at the uh, luncheon in Islamabad of uh, making a fuss over Ken uh, Henry's uh, so-called stomachache so that uh, it would be reported as such and give Henry the cover he was seeking. Before lunch, Joe made a one-and-a-half-hour presentation, as always without notes. This was an extremely tough presentation, though put forward without rhetorical flourish. The preoccupation with Taiwan, the support for the North Vietnamese, the specter of big power collusion, the contempt of the Indians, hatred for the Russians, and apprehension over the Japanese. What they don't understand, basically, is you've got the Japanese on the one side, you've got the Soviet Union on the other side, and the point is we're bringing another player into the game. I then launched into a deliberately brusque point-by-point rebuttal of Cho's presentation. Joe stopped me after the first point, saying the dock would get cold if we did not eat first. Saturday, July 10th. The president made the point that when Henry gets back, he'll be the mystery man of the age, and he'll kill the whole thing if he has one word of backgrounder to any press people. Now we're getting out of a blast from the Washington Post and the New York Times. Why don't we say we're going to recognize Red China? Screw them! I explained the philosophical framework of U.S. foreign policy in the post-war period, culminating in the Nixon Doctrine. We must not retreat. Uh, we must not allow this to be a pattern where America recoils from exploring the unknown, from looking outward, and then we turn inward and become small. Joe listened rapidly, asking very probing but non-contentious questions, some based on the president's remarks in Kansas City of July 6th. It was characteristic of Cho that when I said I had only seen press reports of the Kansas City speech, I found Cho's own annotated copy of the text waiting for me at breakfast, with a request to return it, as it was his only copy. The call from Henry on the result will probably come around 4 or 5 tomorrow morning, and the president told Al notify him as soon as Henry called, and they discussed some uh, code words to set up so that... Uh, and he would just simply say it's on or off or postponed and no more information from there because he doesn't want to risk any leak. He said to use Eureka if there's a success and to find out what the Greek word is for failure to use for the opposite. Joe went on to say that to establish diplomatic relations with the People's Republic, the U.S. must recognize that Taiwan is an inalienable part of China. I responded that the Chinese were going beyond what they had said to us in their messages, in which they had requested the removal of our military presence only. Sunday, July 11th. I didn't go into the office, and there was no contact with the president other than a phone call at 7.50 this morning, when he called, uh, obviously quite pleased, to say we got the message all right, that they agreed on the time for uh, making the joint communique, but the meeting has been put off to spring of next year. The, the thing was very dramatic uh, that Henry had met with them for 17 hours. The game on this, of course, is still to play at mom. No word to anybody. The president will tell Rogers. What if they say, do you consider there's one or two Chinas? I said, we did not advocate two Chinas or a one China, one Taiwan solution, but would accept any political evolution agreed to by the parties. 
Joe, after much give and take, said that recognition was not a precondition, but that the visit should set recognition as the ultimate direction of our policy. He accepted my position that some time would be required for this to happen. That is well into your second term. The point here is that no promises have been made and no commitments have been made to the Chinese that have to be delivered prior to 1972. But uh, after that, it's inevitable that uh, Taiwan's going to have to become a province of China or something of that sort. Of course, these people were on their best behavior. Almost all of the positive qualities we saw are Chinese, not communist, and can be found in Taiwan or Singapore or San Francisco. Much of their ideology is distasteful, and living in China today would be a numbing, depressing experience. The president then went back and sort of reminisced on the uh, conversation he'd had with Henry when the message came in delivered by the PAC ambassador that uh, set up this trip to begin with. And Henry, he said Henry was actually literally trembling when he brought the message up to the president in the Lincoln room. The president had ordered out a glass of brandy for each of them. They'd had a toast. They are certainly fanatically tough. They do not wish us well. Communist China said today they still consider the Nixon administration to be an enemy of the Chinese people. Their tempers are up because of a State Department comment last week that the sovereignty of Taiwan is still a cloudy issue. We have laid the groundwork for you and Chairman Mao to turn a page in history. Let's face it, in the long run, it's so historic. You know, you stop to think of 800 million people where they're going to be. Jesus, this is a hell of a move. But we should have no illusions about the future. Profound differences and years of isolation yawn between us and the Chinese, and they will prove to be implacable foes if our relations turn sour. Tuesday, July 13th, we got in early for Henry's helicopter arrival at 7 o'clock. The president and I met him at the chopper, and then the president took him in his golf cart over to the residence for breakfast. And you know, we talk about all this happened that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't stuck stuck to your guns through this period, too, you know. Well, Mr. President, you may be possible. Henry Kissinger, the president's foremost White House advisor on foreign affairs, returned from a globe-circling trip and landed in a cloud of curiosity today in San Clemente. The president called me in at 10 and uh, quickly reviewed Henry's findings. It's pretty clear that the Chinese want it just as badly as we do, and that makes it easier to negotiate. Since last night's dramatic announcement, reporters have been clamoring to talk to Dr. Kissinger. Henry, can you just tell us, do you feel encouraged as a result of your trip to Peking? Uh, I think we, we made some progress. President emphasized the absolute necessity of uh, no press in the compound at any time during the rest of this week. He then went through the list of people to be informed and agreed that we should inform the British, French, Germans, Australians, Koreans... Taiwan, of course, the Thais, South Vietnam, Japan, and India. No Latin Americans, not, definitely not Canada. All of these would be told just 15 minutes before the president goes on the air and should be done by Rogers and Haig. Henry and Rogers argued about who gets to tell the Indians. They know it's really going to shock them, and they both want the pleasure of being able to do it. Kissinger came away with the impression that the communist Chinese have great seriousness of purpose in their willingness to meet with President Nixon. We feel it's very important now that everybody say nothing and let us let it be handled at this, this level. Rogers made the point that the important thing is to convince the American people that we have leadership that is orderly, that the president knows what he's doing, 
and that the reasons for this being secret is in order to make peace. Because of the agreement Dr. Kissinger reached with Zhou Enlai in Peking, White House officials will not discuss details of their talks. Then we got into the handling of the China question, the United Nations. We have to figure out how we avoid double-crossing Taiwan in this. We're fighting to keep Taiwan, and we can't. I mean, we're going to get rolled uh, on, on, on the other one, but, uh, uh, but because we're going to lose, but we, we can keep Taiwan in. Uh, Peking isn't going to like it. They'll, they'll squeal at this, but I, we expect that. Thursday, July 15th, the day of the uh, big speech, the president was in good spirits and completely relaxed during the day. We didn't inform anybody of uh, the content of the speech until we got to the TV studio. Sometimes, it, uh, particularly with the medium of television, where you can go directly to the people, not through the press, just whack it right out there. They, uh, it, uh, it'll, it'll give his press a little pause. The president also decided he wanted to walk on to the camera rather than be standing behind the podium when the thing started. Good evening. I have requested this television time tonight to announce a major development in our efforts to build a lasting peace in the world. President Nixon's historic announcement that he plans to visit communist China has evoked widespread speculation as to the impact of the visit on the future shape of American foreign policy. As I have pointed out on a number of occasions over the past three years, there can be no stable and enduring peace without the participation of the People's Republic of China. And we've got to make the point to the right wing that we can't just arm ourselves to the teeth and uh, keep the bad guys away that we're going to have to talk with them and try to handle things uh, in a way that we come out on top, or at least that we don't lose anything. That is why I have undertaken initiatives in several areas to open the door for more normal relations between our two countries. No Democrat could have done it. Oh, yes. And the fact here, I have done it because, frankly, the hawks trust me. In pursuance of that goal, I sent Dr. Kissinger, my assistant for national security affairs, to Peking during his recent world tour for the purpose of having talks with Premier Zhou Enlai. Kissinger can put the whole thing into perspective and make it clear that this is not just an accident where Henry happened to uh, jump at the chance at the last minute to zip over to... Uh, Peking. The press will try to give Kissinger the credit in order to screw the president, and they'll try to say the president had nothing to do with it. Henry's argument is that he can shoot that down. The announcement I shall now read is being issued simultaneously in Peking and in the United States. We apparently can say very little uh, beyond the communique itself. The president said he would work up 500 words to expand on the communique. He'd like to refer to peace in the world, but Henry wasn't sure the Chinese would permit that. They will not permit reference to peace in Asia. Knowing of President Nixon's expressed desire to visit the People's Republic of China, Premier Chou Enlai, on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China, has extended an invitation to President Nixon to visit China at an appropriate date before May 1972. And also the liberals on the other side will make the uh, tricky dick claim uh, and will complain that there was no consultation with Congress and do everything they can to scuttle it. So we have a delicate path to tread right down the middle. President Nixon has accepted 
the invitation with pleasure. We got into some of the problems. Rogers pointed out that uh, we're going to appear to be letting our friends down, and they'll object. We need to reassure our Pacific allies that we're not changing our policy regarding them. If I do it publicly, then that does slap our friends abroad. You see my point? I've got to keep the... Don't you agree? I agree. The meeting between the leaders of China and the United States is to seek the normalization of relations between the two countries and also to exchange views on questions of concern to the two sides. Rogers, in a meeting with Henry and me, urged, therefore, that we have to make clear what we didn't do. That we have no secret deals with Peking, no promises, no concessions were made, and assure Congress that we'll cooperate with them on this. In anticipation of the inevitable speculation which will follow this announcement, I want to put our policy in the clearest possible context. This has nothing to do with trying to make the Soviet mad or the Chinese mad. This is to get along with both. The line that I took in Romania and Yugoslavia and Romania, that you can be our friend without being anybody else's enemy. Our action in seeking a new relationship with the People's Republic of China will not be at the expense of our old friends. We seek friendly relations with all nations. The president said that the points to underline are that this is not directed against any country, how it affects Vietnam, we won't speculate the purposes U.S. and China, how it affects Japan, India, etc. Again, no speculation. This is between China and the U.S. Any new relationship can contribute to the peace of the world. In the meantime, everybody's to shut his yap except what the president says. I have taken this action because of my profound conviction that all nations will gain from a reduction of tensions and a better relationship between the United States and the People's Republic of China. There was validity 10 years ago to playing the free nations of Asia against China. While the Asian world will continue in a flux, we can play a more effective role by working with the Chinese than without them. The president's decision to visit China brought loud applause from Congress with only a few scattered boos. Some elated Republicans saw the trip as a political coup that could guarantee another Nixon term in the White House. The president also came into the staff meeting and practically drove Henry nuts because he said he was only going to stay in for a minute and a half, and he stayed for 20 minutes, giving his opening remarks, during the process of which Henry got more and more nervous and finally broke his pencil. He was so distressed. It is in this spirit that I will undertake what I deeply hope will become a journey for peace. Both Rogers and Kissinger agree that there's a real question in unleashing the Chinese as to what they'll do to us someday because of their native ability. Peace not just for our generation, but for future generations on this earth we share together. Thank you and good night. The president made the point that they would do far worse if we weren't working with them than they will this way, so it's still what we're doing is the right thing. We hope you enjoyed Act 3 of Nixon's China Choice. Please support this project with a PayPal donation. This podcast was written and produced by Craig Addison. Music by Ben Robinson. Audio restoration by Ben Robinson and Paolo Bigozzi. In November 1972, Richard Nixon won a second term in a landslide, but the Watergate scandal would eventually consume his presidency 
and he resigned on August the 9th, 1974. Call me at home after midnight to make the point that we'll have a delicate problem with Rogers tomorrow regarding Kissinger doing the briefing. And he wanted me in notifying Rogers of it to emphasize the shift to the president as Kissinger did with the SALT briefings. So once again, I get to do the dirty work. 